I said we were going to do a three-week study in uh, John 17, but I'm going to try to get it all in today. Uh, and I managed to get everybody out at a reasonable time last service, and I plan on doing that again. So John 17, let me organize my stuff here. All right. Now, before I have you stand for the reading of the word, um, for those of you who are new, we're going through the book of John. We're going chapter by chapter. We're now in uh, what is considered the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Uh, The Apostle John, through chapters 13 to 17, uh, does an in-depth study of the last hours of Jesus' life. And as I've said before, had the other writers taken this much detail to describe Jesus' life, the three years he was on this earth, the Bible would be six times as large as it is now. Uh, John takes tremendous effort to detail the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and what we have today is, is called the priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, if, if I were to say to you, recite the Lord's Prayer, many of you would say, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is not the Lord's Prayer. That is not the Lord's Prayer. The reason why it's not the Lord's Prayer is because it says in that prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus was without sin. It's not his prayer. It should be called the disciples' prayer. He's teaching us how to pray. This, John 17, is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, This is his priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus has prayed often in the scriptures. We know that he prayed before he chose the the 12 disciples. Uh, He prayed before he walked on water. Uh, It says in Mark that in the early chapter of Mark, that he arose long before the sun, he, he awoke long before the sun arose and went to a solitary place and there prayed with the Father. He prayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He prayed, what then we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. And, and we've seen him pray. His, his ministry was a ministry of prayer. It was the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. That's why he gave them the disciples' prayer because they knew that Jesus' public life of power was a result of his private life of prayer. And they knew that prayer was associated with why he would accomplish so many things on the earth. And that's why they said not once but twice, Lord, teach us how to pray. They didn't say teach us how to walk on water, teach us how to raise the dead, teach us how to feed thousands with a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. Uh, they, they witnessed all the miracles. The only thing they asked Jesus to teach them was how to pray. And, and they had the privilege, and John wrote it down, to be a fly on the wall uh, in a prayer between uh, the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. The, the entire trinity of God was existent in this prayer. And, it, and in a sense, uh, it's what Warren Wearsby said. He said, trying to understand this prayer is like trying to shovel mercury with a pitchfork. Because it, it is in a, it's an eternal perspective prayer. Uh, the Lord is, is praying, Jesus is praying to the Father. And, and both have a, a, an eternal perspective. We're temporal. Much of what we read in it is so deep that it would be hard to manifest. We, we can't even comprehend the glory of the Father. But yet, as, as intense as the prayer is, there's also very key aspects he wanted us to understand and apply to our own lives. So there are things that we can glean from it. Uh, but, but there are portions where you could really just sit on a sentence and meditate on that for an unbelievable amount of time where Jesus would say, in a sense, Father, you've given them to me, speaking of us. And you, you see this idea of giving, it's a gift. And he looks at, this is, this is one that baffles me. He looks at me as a gift, that the Father gave us as a gift to the Son. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, man, you got gypped. You know, that's like, that's like a gift. I remember... Um, a comedian saying, my, my grandfather was an odd man. He gave my brother a bag of broken glass and he gave me a box of Band-Aids. And he says, you boys make sure you share. <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in there. I don't know how it fits. but And I look at that, it's just, a, it, how can I be a gift to Jesus? And yet, when you look at this prayer, it's exactly what Jesus is saying. We're a gift to him from the Father. There's so many things to contemplate. One other thing before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord is uh, I was asked yesterday uh, by my Mormon friends to watch the uh, 185th General Assembly of uh, LDS, um, the, the LDS General Assembly. I think they meet twice a year and uh, they meet in this great hall in Salt Lake City. I've been there. It's, it's a massive auditorium. And uh, it's established so that you have the Mormon tabernacle behind, and then in front of the Mormon tabernacle is what they call the Quorum of the Seventy. And then in front of the Quorum of the Seventy are what they call the Twelve Apostles. And then they have the President and the First and Second 
assistant to the president. I don't know the exact title. You know the title. What is it? First and second counselors to the president. Uh, Grant, you spent how long in the Mormon church? 14 years. So Grant, if you want any Mormon theology, Grant's the guy. Um, and, and, uh, and what's fascinating is since 1906, it's the first time since 1906 that these 12 uh, apostles, three of them died this past year, and they were appointing from the quorum of the 73 more. So it's one quarter of their leadership was, was being replaced. And um, it was no fanfare. They announced the three names. They got up out of the quorum of the 70 seats. They came and they sat down. And then they proceeded with the business dealings of the General Assembly, and, and that was about the extent of it. The president, or the prophet, uh, is, is considered um, to, to be, in a sense, the voice of the Lord in many respects. And uh, he is now in his late 80s, if not 90s, and he looks healthy as an ox. Um, and I, I marveled at, at this idea of the uniformity of the LDS. Um, if, if the camera scanned, it was everybody looked very similar. Um, and, and so much so that when the person would speak, they had this really, or, not ornate, but a very large pulpit, a dais. And my wife noticed this, I didn't, the uniformity of it. So when the speaker would step down and the next speaker would step up, depending on the height of the speaker, the podium would adjust automatically. So there's the exact distance for every speaker. Uh, and, and you just, you marvel at that. And everyone seemed to have similar suits and dress the same way and haircuts the same. And there was unbelievable uniformity. Uh, I traveled to Salt Lake City as a guest of the LDS. Uh, I went to Desiree storehouses, which is where they care for their, their needy, uh, widows, orphans, and the like. The storehouse was, it was a, like a supermarket. It, it was so clean you could eat off the floors. They didn't have dented, leftover, you know, canned food that we'd give on a food drive, stuff we haven't eaten. And uh, th- theirs was their own label. It was high-quality food. They had red meat that you could purchase. They had, and, and you would get a, a, a script from the bishop, and you could, it was a bishop's storehouse, and, and you could go and shop there if you were in need. Uh, they'd put people to work, um, the, the uniformity of, of their members, they all have to tithe. Uh, what is your income? A, a tenth goes to the, to the church. And I marveled at the efficiency of it. Every place I went to, uh, it was manned by volunteers. Everyone who holds a position of leadership within the LDS is a volunteer. Uh, they don't have a paid clergy. Uh, from the president all the way to the quorum of the 70, to the local bishops, to the president of, a, of, of an area. Uh, they're all volunteers. They hold a full-time job, and, and their, their time with the church is voluntary. And, and I looked at that, and I thought, that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It, it causes folks within what I call Orthodox Christianity to marvel at the organization and the uniformity of the LDS. However, as I listened to the entirety of the broadcast, uh, I saw a very distinct difference in our theology. Um, I, I noticed that the Mormons have the same lexicon that we have in, in Orthodox Christianity, the same lexicon. They just have a different dictionary. They use the words atonement, um, Jesus Christ, Savior, uh, God the Father. Um, they have the same lexicon, but a different dictionary. Um, that we're monotheistic, they're polytheistic. They believe in many gods, we believe in one God. They believe Jesus to be a separate God from the Father. Um, and, and you go into their theology and it's, it's very, very different than our own. They talk about atonement, but it's also based on observation of the doctrines and covenants and obeying um, the laws. And for us, in Orthodox Christianity, it says... It's by grace through faith you've been saved, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Uh, In Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, we are saved by grace through faith, meaning that we aren't saved by our works. We're saved by what Jesus has done. He's put his righteousness on our account, and we observe the law not to be saved. We observe the law because we are saved. We do what is right because of, uh, of a relationship with love, because of what Christ has done for us. We respond to obey the things that bless him. Uh, whereas in, in Mormonism, uh, you, you obey uh, to honor God, and, and there's three heavens, uh, celestial, telestial, terrestrial. Um, and, and there is somewhat of a hell, but it's only reserved for Satan in its outer darkness. 
non-believers can enter into the first heaven. I've said to my Mormon friends, I said, yours is a, an easier cell than mine. You have, in a sense, three heavens and no hell. Uh, I have a heaven and a hell. And uh, if there was any doctrine I, I'd like to get rid of, it would be the doctrine of hell because it's a tough one. But the, the reality is no one spoke more of hell than Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there. And there is a reality of hell. I wish there wasn't, but there is. And Christ came to save us from that and to deliver us from that. And hell, basically, I'm not going to go into it right now, Grant. We can talk about it later. Thank you. <laughs> um, and if, if I get it wrong, Grant will correct it. Uh, but the other idea, too, is, um, you know, it, the, first, the first heaven, or the one that we're allowed to go to as non-believers in LDS, is basically a place where Christ doesn't exist and neither does God the Father. Well, t- well to me, that would be hell itself, because heaven is being in the presence of God. Um, and so we look at this, and, and I would say we, we struggle, we struggle because here we are in a world where we're endeavoring for unity. Everyone's talking about, let, can't we all get along? And, and unity should never come at the expense of truth. It was Benjamin Franklin said, those who would give up their liberty for the sake of security deserve neither. Uh, there are things that we must hold to that are true, even though they may not be the majority opinion. And we're going to see today in Jesus' priestly prayer that he makes it very clear, very clear, that there is one true God. And I, I would say this to all of you, the most counterfeited bill in the world is the U.S. $100 bill. And the reason why the world tries to counterfeit that as opposed to the Guatemalan Quetzal is, is because it has value. It, 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 it is the currency of what is rapidly becoming not, but has been for a long time the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And so there's an attempt to counterfeit that bill. They make it look as close to the original as possible because of the, the security of that, that currency. Well, that's what we find in religion. People try to mimic the original, to give value and, and credibility to, to um, a counterfeit. And it's not like people you know, want to be just like Buddhism or they try to be just like Islam. Uh, they want to be just like Christianity. But the difference be- between all religions in the world and Christianity is simply this, and I said it earlier. Pay attention. It is by grace through faith that you've been saved. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. My point is this. Every religion in the world, religion means relungari in the, in the Latin, means to relink, reconnect with God. Every religion in the world is man's attempt to reconnect with God by doing something, observing the doctrine and covenants, the pearl of great price, uh, the science of faith and healing, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran. Everyone's trying to obtain favor with God by doing. And we get this term sin, and, and, and real simple, I've, I've shared it many times before, sin is an archer's term, bow and arrow. You have the bullseye and the arrow lands here. This is an archery called the sin distance. How far you've fallen from perfection. Every religion in the world is the arrow trying to hit the bullseye, and we never will. Christianity is God moves the bullseye to where we are. It says he imputes his righteousness by faith to us. Christ's righteousness is put on our account. His his Blood shed on the cross for our sins cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And so when God looks at us in our, in our uniqueness, he also sees us covered in the blood of his son and his son's righteousness. And so we, we may not have uniformity, but we have unity. Unity in the fact that all of us who claim the name of Christ, though we're different, are all covered by the blood of, of the Lamb. So the contrast is this. You look at Mormonism, it, it looked like the three guys that they did the the biographies on that had passed away, uh, then the three, one, three guys that took over, they looked almost the exact same. It was like three of the same replaced with three of the same. And, and the room looked the same. And there was uniformity. And everyone raised their hand. The pulpit moved in uniformity and distance. Everything was the same. And you contrast the LDS with what we call Orthodox Christianity. And uh, come on, they just arrived late. You don't have to harass them by looking at them. Everyone's like, ah! oh, and it's my two sons. Isn't that great? <laughs> okay. I didn't understand the sign language, but I imagine it wasn't their fault. 
So where was I? Yeah, I got that. Rhetorical. So uh, the uniformity, let's contrast LDS with what we call Orthodox Christianity. In Orthodox Christianity, we hold to what are called the basic tenets of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, the Trinity, right? The virgin birth. These are non-negotiables based in the scriptures that we hold to be the true living, breathing word of God. These are non-negotiables. You can't use the same lexicon with a different dictionary. The lexicon has to match the dictionary. What God's word says is, is what it means. And so these are non-negotiables. They're, they're what we call salvific in Christianity. Now, outside of that are issues called, that are called non-salvific. They have nothing to do with our salvation. And, and the body of Christ, Orthodox Christianity, we can differ on these. We can differ on our eschatology, which is our view of how the end is going to turn out. We can differ on whether or not women can teach from uh, the pulpit. We can differ whether we believe in infant baptism or believer's baptism, whether we believe that you can do baptism by sprinkling or full immersion. And we can differ on all of that. And there is a patchwork. We have churches that believe that you must wear a tie if you're going to preach. This isn't one of them. Uh, we have... <laughs> We, we differ in music styles. In our nine o'clock service, we have a group of congregants that love hymns and they come in and they, we can't even agree on the music, but we agree on the tenets of the Christian faith. And so thus you have... Uh, different expressions of worship. You have some folks that like to roll on the floor and yell and scream. Uh, you have others that believe in no syncopated rhythms and, and the congregation has to sing hymns together without any instruments. Uh, it, and it is a patchwork. Instead of uniformity, which is not what the Lord speaks of of unity, instead of uniformity, which we saw in the LDS, we have unity. Unity would be the simple thing that it's like a patchwork quilt. Uh, we, are, we are a whole bunch of different patches that are unified through the, the, the stitching of these non-negotiables, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, the trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection. Amen? And this patchwork quilt, I got to tell you, is one of the ugliest quilts I think I've ever seen. It is bizarre in so many ways, shapes, and forms. Just look around the room. You can see a portion of one of these patches. I've said this before. It looks like the bar scene out of Star Wars. And some of you aren't laughing. Well, (laughs) then just look at me and laugh. I mean, that I would be in the pulpit is hilarious in that sense. God has a sense of humor. So we have unity, but it is a patchwork quilt. And God doesn't take away our identity so that we have uniformity. We don't have to act the same and do the same. And and in legalism, this is that attempt. And so what we're going to see in Jesus's prayer is a call for unity. He says, Father, let them be one as I am one in you. This is is a common theme throughout this prayer, Jesus's priestly prayer. He's going to use the word sanctified. He says, Father, sanctify them. And the idea of sanctified means to set apart, to set apart. Now, sanctify, uh, sanctification doesn't mean isolation. Uh, we think that sanctified defined as I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this, I certainly would never do that. You can tell me all day long what you don't do and I still don't know who you are. I don't know who you are until I know what you do. Christianity is not defined by what we don't do. It's defined by what we do. Sanctification isn't you isolating yourself in a bunker in Montana. Did you get that? Sanctification means you're set apart for the Father's use to glorify the Father. How do you glorify the Father? To declare the Son to a lost and dying world. And you think isolating to protect yourself, that is not Christianity. Sanctification is not isolation. And the Lord is going to declare this. He says, Lord, I I would will not to take them out of the world, but that they would remain. I got to tell you, I would love it if you take me out. He says that they would remain, but they would be protected from the evil one. He knows you're going to be struggling. We're in the world, but not of the world. He's going to use the term world, cosmos, over 19 times in this prayer. And it is a powerful and profound and insightful prayer, one that is called to affect us profoundly this morning. And so together, let's stand for the reading of this priestly prayer, the Lord's Prayer in John 17. Chapter 17, verse 1. 
Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And by the way, this is nine out of every 10 prayers in the Bible, their hands are not folded and their eyes are not closed. You can lift your eyes and keep them open while you're praying. And it really helps when you're driving. Now, with kids, you, you want to have depri- uh, sensory deprivation, you know, because they're all squirrely. So you do want to have them fold their hands and close their eyes and pray so they're focusing. And you, even then you have problems because Johnny was looking. Well, how do you know? I mean, how do you know he's looking? <laughs> so, okay, let's get back to it. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Everyone say, the hour has come. Glorify your son that, this is the, the reason, that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work. Fascinating he said that and he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We'll cover that in a moment. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And by the way, his name, Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, Jesus, Yeshua, means God is salvation. I've manifested this salvation to those you've given me. They were yours. You gave them to me. That's the gift I was speaking of. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. I have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Believe, by the way, is gnosko, which means not just uh, intellectually, but experientially. I pray for them. Now, he begins by praying for himself, and now he prays for the disciples, the twelve he's chosen. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, uh, excuse me, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Now, in marriage, it's a little different. I, mine with my wife is everything that is mine is yours, and everything that is yours is yours. Um, <laughs> she's here, and she's not even laughing. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, and by the way, that's the only time that's ever stated in the Scriptures, Holy Father. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And the idea means to protect. He says, I've kept them. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Who's that? Judas. The scripture might be fulfilled, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, please say it, sanctify. Sanctify Sanctify them by your truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by what? The truth. I do not pray for those alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, now he's praying for you and me that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the world the, the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one I in them you and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me father It says in your scripture, I desire, but the proper definition is I will. It's the only time where Jesus extends his will over that of the fathers. And let's see what he desires. He says, Father, I will what? That they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me. 
for you love me before the foundation of the world. You know what he asked the Father? Father, I will that they be with me in heaven. That's what he wants for you and me. Oh, righteous Father. Again, that's the only time we see that in Scripture. Oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And then I'm going to read one more verse. It's out of chapter 18, verse 1. It just simply says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. And guess what happens in that garden? Judas betrays him. And within 12 hours, he's hanging on a cross, dead. At this point in this prayer, the cross has already been hewn and fashioned and assembled. The nails have already been forged. The spear is in the hand of the centurion that will pierce the side of our Savior. The crown of thorns will be made from a bush growing near Gethsemane or Golgotha, excuse me, near Golgotha. The location for the crucifixion has already been determined and picked out. The cat of nine tails, nine flat slices, slaps of leather with glass shards and metal shards has already been designed, soaking in water, ready to slap the back of the Savior and to rip the flesh out of his back as it whips him. The king's game is already prepared. His beard will be pulled out of his face. He'll be so brutally beaten his own mother wouldn't recognize him. And now he prays this prayer and declares it's finished. And so let's ask the Lord for wisdom. God, we thank you for your prayer. We thank you that, Lord, you consider us a gift. Lord, you had John write in the very first chapter that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we can only stand in your presence and receive a prayer where you would consider us a gift, knowing that we are covered by the grace of God, that it's your sacrifice that has cleansed us of all unrighteousness, that we stand before you, Father, not in our own merit, but in the righteousness of your Son, your Son who loved us so much that he went to the cross. His face was sent to set as a flint, that nothing could detract him, that he would even declare, I have finished the work because he knew that there was nothing that would stop him from saving us. And so God, we're here today in the righteousness of your son. And for those who don't know you, Lord, your prayer, your will is that they would be in heaven with you, that they too would receive by faith through grace, this gift of salvation. So God, speak to us now, we pray, according to your riches in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please be seated. This prayer is broken into three sections, one where Jesus prays for himself, and the other he prays for his disciples, and then the third section, as we've seen, he prays for the church, for us who claim the name of Christ. He lifted up his eyes, as I said earlier, and it wasn't on his knees or his hands folded or his eyes closed. There's different ways to pray. And, and God knows our heart. It's not, it's not the position we take physically. It's the position we take with our heart. You can pray while you're driving. You can pray in the shower. You can pray when your parachute is not opening. <laughs> Those are usually quick prayers. And, and he says, Father, the hour has come. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. And we, we've seen this. We've covered this. Because when his mother came to him early on in, at, the, at the wedding feast, I think it was in John 3, maybe 2, she said, they're out of wine. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, I'd, if I'd said that to my, my mother... I'd be picking up my teeth with my broken arm. But he wasn't speaking as a son to a mother. He was speaking as God to his creature, his creation. And what Mary was saying is, do one of those things you do as the son of God and fix this. And God doesn't do the bidding of man. There would be one moment where he put himself in the hands of man and what would we do with him? Well, when that hour would come, when he said, my hour has not yet come, that's really where Jesus is saying, I will put myself in the hands of man. And what did we do with him? We beat him. 
We scourged him. We crucified him. The occasion has arisen where Jesus now says in this prayer, Father, the hour has come. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to sweat his outward drops of blood. He'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'll be taken uh, to the Antonio Fortress. They'll gamble for his clothing. They'll mock him. They'll spit upon him. They'll beat him. They'll scourge him. They'll whip him. They'll crucify him between two thieves. It's the greatest hour of all mankind. This is where the redemption the cleansing, blood must be shed for the remission of sin. This is where the blood of a holy Savior will be poured out for all the world's sins. His blood shed on Golgotha was sufficient for all the world's sins, but only efficient for those who claim the name of Christ. Now he's saying the hour has come. It's the greatest hour of all mankind. It's the most critical and, and pregnant moment in all of history. Eternal issues, eternal consequences are in the balance. He's going to bear the wrath of God on this mount of Calvary. Divine justice will be meted out as the Father will allow the sins of the world to be placed upon him and he will allow his son to be beaten, crucified. Satan will be disarmed and all the powers and the principalities of darkness will be overcome. As Jesus will say, the one word that will echo through all history into eternity to tell us die in the Greek. For us, it's three words. It is finished. He will have overcome sin and death. The power of sin will be defeated. will no longer have its hold on us. We will now come to know the truth and the truth will set us free. Salvation will be provided as he will deliver us from death unto life as he's about to go to the cross. And redemption will be procured. Or when he says to tell us die, it is finished. He can turn to the thief on the cross and say to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Then he prays, Father, the hour has come. This hour, this hour is one that we will see in the coming days as we study beyond this passage of scripture, how significant. And in this moment, when he says, Father, the hour has come, he utters in this prayer, he says, glorify your son. And he gives the reason. You say, why is he praying for himself? Glorify your son. He gives the reason for it, that your son may also glorify you. The chief aim of man is to glorify God, to bring glory to God. You're not on this earth for selfish purposes or your own desires or your own pleasure. You're here to bring glory to God. And in Jesus is the fullness of joy. You've attempted to live life apart from glorifying God. You've tried to live life as Solomon did, trying to find any pleasure under the sun. For most Americans, we've never denied ourselves a single pleasure. We've taken pleasure to a whole new level. And yet it doesn't matter how much money we make or what toys we possess or whatever we've engaged in, we always find ourselves empty. There's nothing on all the earth that satisfies. As Blaise Pascal said, every man's created with a God-shaped void. We never find complete satisfaction or purpose until we're glorifying God. We've been created, the chief aim of man is to glorify God. In him, the scripture says, is the fullness of joy. And so when Jesus says, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you, when you pray, it's fascinating that when we pray, we pray for things we want and things we need. Never with the purpose of saying, God, I would desire this that I might better glorify you. We usually pray so that we can be removed from some sort of trial or we can be, uh, you know, enriched by some sort of blessing so we can be alleviated from some sort of difficulty. Never do we consider prayer being this idea of, God, would you align myself in the matrix of eternity with, with this concept of being within your will and glorifying you? May the things I ask for be for your greater glory. We think we get a promotion so we can buy more things for ourselves. God gives you a promotion to glorify him in a greater capacity and give you more influence and purpose. When he gives you glory, glory is the concept, the definition of the word in the Greek means substance, it means heaviness, it means weight. It's almost like what they used to say in the late 60s, man, that's heavy. That's what glory is, it's substance. It's something upon which is firm and you can stand upon. And Jesus says in verse two, as you have given me, him, authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Lord, you've given these folks to me and you've given me authority. You've given me substance. You've given me glory. And that, that authority is so that, that I, can, I can bring eternal life to as many as you've given me. So his whole desire is that man would be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, a gift to mankind. And God, you've given them to me that I might give them back to you, redeemed in my blood and cleansed of all sin and all unrighteousness, that they would stand before you righteous, not in themselves, but in me. That we would redeem a fallen man. 
He says, and this is eternal life. And if you wonder what eternal life is, this is eternal life. He says that, you may, that they may know you. Who? The only true God. There's only one $100 bill that's legit. There's only one God that's legit. There are many gods, small g. We're not all the same. We seek unity at the expense of truth, and, and that's where we get the one world religion, and we come together. Can't we all get along? And there are many roads to heaven, and it can come through Buddhism or Islam or, or whatever, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and we're all together in this quest to relink to God. It's not true. Jesus says it's not true. He says there's one true God, and there's one Savior. He says, there's one true God. This is salvation. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. How do we know he's true? His word declares it to be. People say, oh, Calvary Chapel, you all worship the Bible. I worship Jesus. Well, how do you know who Jesus is apart from his word? Do you get this from uh, the historical writings of Josephus or something that uh, Gandhi said? How do you have a formulation of Jesus being uh, the savior of the world? You, you wouldn't know the revelation of Christ if it wasn't for the word of God. And, and the scriptures say that Jesus in the Psalms, God holds the word, his word above his name. If his word isn't true, we can't take him as a, as, as a God we can trust. There's 66 books of the Bible written by over 40 different authors over a span of thousands of years in three different languages. And cover to cover, it is the more sure word of prophecy that we find, and it is God's inerrant, infallible word. You say, well, I can find contradictions. I'm sure you can. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was driving on a bus coming over the Coronado Bay Bridge, reading my Bible. Brand new believer, guy sits down next to me, he says, why are you reading that junk? He used a different word. I said, it's it's the holy word of God. I'm, I'm, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm excited about reading. He says, that's not the word of God. He said, give me that. He takes it out of my hands. He says, read this. And I read it. And he turns to another page. He says, read that. He says, that's a contradiction. How can it be the word of God if it contradicts itself? I'm like, wow, I, I'm, I'm not sure. He says, well, that's not all. And he turns to another page. He turns and says, contradiction. He did this to me five, ten times. I don't remember. He had me spinning. All I remember is every time I read God's word, my heart was touched. Every time I applied it, my, my life was changed. And now I'm holding something going, wondering, is it really and I think of the multitude in this room. Some of you, as I said before, have taken a, a, a comparative religion class in your junior college or maybe in some university, and you've, you've come to the conclusion that uh, the Bible was written by men and, and, and the book of Jonah was a whale of a tale. And I remember taking that book back, and, and, and the, the verse that God had called me early on in my young Christian life was 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I sat down and I said, God, help me. Began to go through these contradictions in context and reading original manuscripts and and outlines and coming to realize there's no contradictions. And yet, we come to a place where somebody on a bus can, can disconnect you from the living, breathing word of God because of something they said. Or something a professor said who has a bias towards Christianity. And you dismiss it. I, I think of some of the young people early on, there was a uh, YouTube thing called Zeitgeist going around dis- dismissing the scriptures. And I, and I look at you and I say to you, how can you be so ignorant as to dismiss something that has transformed the world, given us the calendar that we hold today, transformed the Western world as we know it, is responsible for more hospitals and rescue missions on the face of the earth. Some of the greatest accomplishments man's ever known, and you would dismiss it because you saw a YouTube video? Read the scriptures. Study. Educate yourself. Apply yourself. Eternity's at stake. And Jesus declares... There's one true God and there's one Savior, Jesus Christ. He refers to himself the only time in Scripture is Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name, Yeshua, which means God is salvation. And Christ is his title, Messiah, Savior of the world. He says that they would know the only true God. Not one, but the only true God. 
He says, I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the work. As I said earlier, his face was set as a flint on the way to the cross. He already knew redemption was coming. God is perfect and that which he begins, he's faithful to complete. He says, that work which you've given me to do. In verse five, he says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Yeah, you think about that glory made manifest that, that when Moses just saw the hindquarters of God, his face glowed for days. That he would only see him in the crevice of the rock and he would come down and people would fall at the face of Moses where he'd have to hide his face with a veil. This glory that is unapproachable, light that is unapproachable, brighter than the noonday sun in the Middle East that would knock Saul off of his high horse on the road to Damascus. A glory so overwhelming that it would fill the temple. And Isaiah would say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. This is the glory that he speaks of before the world was formed that he had with the Father. But in a sense, he, he put his glory aside. He veiled it as it is in the scriptures, he veiled that glory, though we read in, in 1 John 14 that they beheld his glory, but he veiled it in, in human form. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He took on the form of a human, of a man, veiling his humanity, excuse me, veiling his deity. But that glory would be revealed whether it was covered in, in human skin, because if you wanted to see the Father, all you had to do was look at the Son. You wanted to see the Father's heart towards the lost, for God so loved the world he gave his Son. You want to see the Father's heart towards the infirmed, then you would watch him heal the blind and the lame and the deaf and, and raise the dead. If you wanted to see the Father's heart towards the hungry, he would feed thousands and multitudes with a few loaves and fishes. That glory would be revealed. You would see this glory revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration. You would see this glory revealed as he's walking on water. How would this glory manifest itself? He would abide in the Father. He would arise long before the sun would, would come up and he'd go to a solitary place and there commune with the Father. And we as Christians struggle with the concept of prayer, yet Jesus' public life of power was a result of his private life of prayer. And he's saying this desire that, that the glory which I had with you before the world was that soon he will shed this earth suit and he will be in the presence of the Father. And when we get to heaven, we will see the Son glorified, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we'll spend eternity just contemplating the intensity of this glory and the magnificence of it. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me a gift and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you for I've given them the words which you have given me and they have received them. His name is salvation and through his word we've come to know this gospel in the Greek it means oulangelion which means good news that a holy God would redeem a sinful man that he would give the world a savior in the form of Jesus Christ. All of us would say, well, I don't need a savior. I'm a self-made man. My question to you is, when did you form yourself in the womb of your mother? When did you knit your body together? That body which has been fearfully and wonderfully made. As the scripture says, before you were born, I knew you. Tell me, self-made man or woman, how do you keep your lungs moving at night and your heart beating when you sleep? Tell me, O oh self-made man and woman, how do you keep yourself on the earth as it's spinning thousands of miles an hour through a, the cosmic universe where gravity holds you and it, it's contrary to, to all laws of physics? How does he hold all things together by the word of his power? How is it that we have Coulomb's law of electricity that like charges repel and opposite charges attract, and yet we're, we're looking at just the minuteness of an atom which is contrary? How could there be a space between the proton and the electron? How does he hold it together? By the word of his power, O self-made man or woman. And he has made his word known and he's manifested it to you. And yet we in the confidence of our flesh would declare we don't need a savior. Paul would be in the same place as he wrote in Philippians. We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ. We have no confidence in the flesh. I would look at you and you, you have confidence in your flesh that somehow you don't need a savior. You're confident in your own idea that you are some cosmic accident and that you're going to get on the Starship Enterprise and go into some other galaxy 
We're 93 million miles from the sun. Just to get to the outer aspects of the Milky Way galaxy, you'd have to travel at the speed of light for thousands of years. You, 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 can't even, you haven't even explored the earth upon which you live. And yet you have confidence in the flesh that somehow you'll stand before a holy God that you don't believe exists as declaring gravity doesn't exist and you're bound by this. And Paul says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Paul was a moral man. I would venture to guess, probably with certainty, that all 70 members of of the quorum of the 70 in the LDS assembly are more moral than I am. I would venture to guess probably with certainty that all 12 apostles, that these men are more moral than I am. But the travesty is, I'm not the standard. God is. I would venture to guess that probably everyone in the room is probably more moral than me. The reason why I can say that is because I live with me. I know me. I came to church because I wanted to get away from me. Come to a church where everyone's just like you. I don't want that. <laughs> and we examine ourselves in the light of God. Scripture says there are none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned, missing the mark, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All religions in the world are trying to get to that spot. And, and I love what Corey Tenboom said. She said, trying to reach God by your works is like trying to go out in the evening on a full moon night where, let's just say it's the blood moon. By the way, we were all supposed to be dead a few days ago. A blood moon. It's so big, you can almost reach out and touch it. And, and let's say that based on our morality, it equates to our physical ability. So let's, let's get some very moral people. We'll get Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul, and we'll get some immoral people. We'll get Rob McCoy. We'll get uh, Ted Bundy, not the same. Adolf Hitler. I'm trying to be in the middle a little bit, okay? Adolf Hitler. And we go out, and, and, and our physical ability is in direct proportion to our morality, okay? And so we're all going to attempt to touch the moon. And Hitler goes first, and he trips and falls down a cliff, doesn't even get off the ground. Ted Bundy falls into a little hole. Rob goes, I get about four inches off the ground. Uh, Mother Teresa goes, she's 108 feet off the ground. Everyone's like, whoa. Billy Graham, I'm Protestant, 128 feet. And then I'll go back to, let's, he was canonized, Pope John Paul. And so that's got to be serious. So he, 240 feet. I mean, no one he's ever jumped 240 feet. That's an amazing feat of morality. But all of us have something in common. None of us came remotely close to touching the moon. I don't care how moral you are. You're standing before a holy and just God who is without sin, who holds the heavens in the span of his hand, who created us to love him. And we have co- the only creatures in all of his creation have committed cosmic treason. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. And his word declares this, and Paul sees it. But Paul wrote, But what things were gained to me, that I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know experientially, him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. And he says, not that I've already obtained that full knowledge. I know I'm saved by grace through faith, but I don't know all the suffering. I don't know the intensity of it. I don't fully know or comprehend the glory of God. But this I do know, that I press, press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. And listen to this. I don't count myself as having apprehended that, but one thing I do know. I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The beauty is, 
everyone in this room every day fails. Can I get an amen? Amen. And that doesn't affect your righteousness one iota if you have been saved by faith through grace and you've trusted Christ as your savior. His righteousness is put on your account. You don't lose your righteousness or your salvation. But the one thing you do is you forget what you just did and you strive towards that upward call in Christ Jesus. You don't observe the law to be saved. You observe it because you are saved. And when you fail to observe it, you just forget. Goodness and mercy will clean it up and you just keep moving. And know this, that Jesus declares that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace. It's a gospel of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We're not righteous because of what we've done. We're righteous because of what he's done. And when we fail, his grace is sufficient. But we, uh, we cling to his truth, full of grace and truth, and we cling to that. That's his word. His word is true. I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you and have believed that you sent me. And then he says this, I pray for them, verse 9, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So he's praying for the disciples. He says, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Father, you've given them to me. They've given themselves to me. And they're, I'm being glorified in their lives. As they trust me, the world sees them. They're they're moved by them. There's something different about them. He says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And now I come to you. And God, they are going to need you, Holy Spirit. They're going to need your strength. I come to you, I leave the... I leave the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And then he says this, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. You know what makes us one in the body of Christ? It's not our uniformity. And I I think how, how we long for uniformity. We love order. Deutschland, Deutschland über alle. Oh, look at the magnificence as they're marching in step, goose-stepping all the way down. Everything's in line and order. And we look at the church. This is not order. This is ridiculous. What makes us one? Jesus. Who is he? He's the son of God. He's the one true God. There's the Trinity. It's the inerrancy of scripture. Your word is truth. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. The virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the empty tomb, non-negotiables, all declared by the, the revealed word of God. A word that Jesus would himself refer to. It is not a whale of a tale. Jesus said of the book of Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, he equates it to him being in the tomb three days. He doesn't call it a whale of a tale. He refers to it as a distinct portion of history. He refers to the book of Genesis as Adam and Eve were given in marriage. There will be no marriage in heaven. He declares Genesis to be legitimate and uses it as an illustration. He holds his word above his name. He illustrates the scriptures and holds to the scriptures. He says, you've given them to me that they would be one. Listen, we're one because of what Christ has done. The thing that holds us together, and this is what is called a sacrament, it is the body and the blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sins. The thing that makes us righteous is what Jesus has done. We come to glorify the Son, and in glorifying the Son, we glorify the Father. Our chief aim of man is to glorify God. We do that when it's no longer my will, but Christ's will. And this is what Jesus is showing in this prayer. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except for the son of perdition. Speaking of Judas, for those of you who think that Judas got saved, he wasn't. There's a play on words here very clearly in the Greek that declares him to be lost. He rejected so great a salvation. The only, the only sin that is unforgivable is what they call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You reject creation, you reject the Father, you reject the Son, and and all creation speaks of the glory of God. 
the, the redemptive aspect of it. God is, is calling you. He's wooing you. The Holy Spirit comes alongside. He's the, convict, he's, he's the convictor of, of sin. He's, he's the restrainer of evil. He's speaking to you. You have a conscience. You know it's there. You can deny him. You can come up with some fanciful idea and, and remove creation and create evolution. Do whatever you want. But the reality of it is, when you deny unto death the Holy Spirit who is wooing you and speaking to you and declaring his... Jesus and lifting up the name of Jesus and declaring his word to be true, when you deny that unto death, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, separation from God for all eternity. Between point A, which is birth, and point B, which is death, if you receive Christ as your Savior in the midst of this time we have, which is grace, that's what time is, you will be saved. But it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. If you reject every testimony, all creation speaking of the glory of God, people testifying of God, your sin being convicted knowing there's a God, and you reject that unto death. There's no hope. And so he points this out. In verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And by the way, joy, being fulfilled. The scripture says, In him is the fullness of joy, and Jesus is the fullness of joy. Why? Well, joy is an acronym. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Let's do it together. Jesus first. Oh, let's try it together. Jesus first. Yourself last. Now, we love to reverse that and screw it all up. And we come up with this really cool acronym called YAJ. Yourself first. I can't love others until I learn to, learn, learn to love myself. You couldn't, you couldn't say one thing that negates the entirety of the gospel with that. Oh, I don't love me. Yes, you do. No, I don't. I hate myself. I, Pastor, you don't understand. I hate myself. I'm ugly. No, you do love yourself. How can you say that? I hate myself. I'm ugly. Well, I, here's how I can say it. If you really hated yourself, you'd be happy you were ugly. Think about it. We say that because we want to bring attention. Oh, you're not ugly. I'm not. No, you're the most. Oh, thank you. Just tell me more about me. You do whatever you can to get the attention on you. Right? You do whatever you can to get the attention on you. And Jesus is saying that his desire is that their joy would be full. That these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I got a call from a reporter have to hurry up here, but I got a call from a reporter and he wanted uh, me to chime in on uh, the person who tried to burn down the Planned Parenthood. And I said, well, here's my quote. I said, uh, the despicable cowardice act does nothing to further the protection of the unborn. And they said, yes, but the, the rhetoric, do you think it escalates attacks on Planned Parenthood? And I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, did you just say what I shared with you as rhetoric? It seems to me that you have an agenda and you've already formulated your article and I, I have no need to be a part of that right now. Oh, quit being so, you've, you've misunderstood me. And he was kind of being aggressive. I said, no, I really have no desire to be a part of your article. You've already figured out what it is you want to write and I don't, I don't want to be your scapegoat. Do you think that the rhetoric or do you think that the, the conversation has escalated attacks on plan? Just answer the question. I said, no. I, I, don't, I don't want to. You can have my quote and I'm finished. And my thought was, you're going to formulate this article saying that somehow being a, a, an advocate for the unborn, I am responsible for some lunatic trying to light on fire a Planned Parenthood. And you're going to write that article in the midst of my brethren being shot in Oregon for their faith. When the Southern Poverty Law Center declares that, that the Family Research Council is a right-wing fundamentalist hate group, and a man goes in there with a gun and a bag full of Chick-fil-A sandwiches to shove the, shove the sandwiches in their mouth and shoot them, and he's taken down by a security guard who's wounded. And you're, you're going to tell me that, that I'm escalating it? And Jesus declared it. He said, I've given them your word that I would declare God's word to say that 
in the womb as a human being. Before you were born, I knew you. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. That, that, the, that baby Jesus leapt in the womb in the presence of John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. That Jacob and Esau were fighting in the womb. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. It's no shock that the world's going to hate you because you declare that there's one true God and that we are called to submit to him. We don't want to submit to God. We want to be in charge of, of our lives. Let me finish. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that, they would, that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's not a truth. It is truth. Sanctify them. And what does sanctify mean? And I want to focus on this. Sanctify means to set apart. It doesn't mean to isolate. God's word declares it. We obey it. And God sanctifies us, sets us apart, not to isolate us in a bunker in Montana. He calls us, he doesn't take us out of the world. He has kept us in the world. Why? That we would be sanctified, kept from the evil one as we cling to his word, obey his word. The world will hate us, but he protects us and he keeps us and he's glorified as we do the bidding of the father. How do we glorify the father? By seeking and saving that which is lost. You are here to tell the world about Jesus, period. You are here to declare the glory of God, his truths to be made manifest in every nook and cranny of our culture. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. You continue to be set apart and glorify God as you stay in his word. And then finally, he says, I don't pray for these alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word, which is all of us today that they may be one. As you, Father, in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in me and in us, that the world may believe that you sent us. They will know we're Christians by our love for one another. The glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Do you see the theme? I and them, you and me, and they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I will, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, his prayer, his will, is that you would be saved. He would want that none would perish, but that all would be saved. He would want that your name would be written in the Lamb's book of life. He would want that his word would sanctify you. He'd want that you would be delivered from death unto life. I don't like the doctrine of hell. I don't necessarily like gravity the older I get. (laughs) But it doesn't take away the fact that it exists. And God has come to set us free. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of his word is declared today that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. He says, and Father, I have loved them. And how much has he loved them? This much. This much. He'd be apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane. His back would be stripped from a cat of nine tails. His face would be beaten. His beard would be pulled out of his face. The crown of thorns would be placed on his head. The nails in his hands, a nail in his feet. The spear in his side. The cross is already fashioned. The nails have been forged. The spear's in the hand of the centurion. And Christ says, as you've loved me, I've loved them. And I will that they be with me. No one will ever love you this much. There's no other savior coming. He's the one true God. You believe that Jesus Christ is his son, the savior of the world, you will be saved to the glory of the father. And now you know why you're here. To be saved and to be used by God for his glory that others would know the truth and the truth would set them free as well. So before you use a communion table,
Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. His grace, what is his grace? His body was broken, his blood was shed. Why? For you and me. That we might be in heaven with him, covered by the blood of the Lamb, all of our sins forgiven. Cleansed of all unrighteousness. And he says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. You've been on that rat wheel running, trying to obey all the rules. And you keep failing. And God says, are you tired yet? Because I've come to set you free. Come. Don't reject so great a salvation. If you receive Christ as your Savior this day, this table's for you. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to take communion together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, that you would declare in verse 24, Father, I will, I will, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then when the world was made, Lord Jesus, you uttered the words of the Father, for God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You gave this priestly prayer, and moments later you'd be crucified. Your body would be broken, your blood would be shed to set the world free. The blood you poured out on Calvary was sufficient for all the world's sins, but only efficient for those who by faith receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's by grace through faith that you've been saved. It's not of works, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And I want you to know this morning as we're before God the Father, covered by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, some of you are struggling with that, but I want you to know something. Jesus looks at you and me as a gift from the Father. He loves you. He loves me. He knows what you've been doing. And he's full of grace and truth and he forgives you. You forget what is behind. You strive for what is ahead. Come and be cleansed. Come and be forgiven. Come and be changed. Lord, we ask that you'd bless now according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.